Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. In episode 8, we're going to see the aftermath of the Babylonian rape of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem and the divided mind of the surviving remnant, all leading up to the last prophecy of Jeremiah, followed by a brief epilogue. Jeremiah, beginning with chapter 40. The section that we're going to be looking at today is essentially this is the end of Jeremiah's story. Now we've seen from the beginning, from the very first chapter, Jeremiah has been inseparable from his message. The person of Jeremiah has been inseparable from his message. More so than any other prophet, we have seen in Jeremiah that the prophet and the message are virtually one entity. Now that creates a lot of struggle because the word is perfect and the prophet is not. So there's a lot of struggle there. There's a lot of friction going on sometimes between the prophet and the very message that he has to take because he does not want to give some of the messages he wants to give and he does not appreciate all the time the position that the message puts him in. And very early on, chapter 12, you see an episode where Jeremiah, he's gotten started, he's preaching the message, he's preaching a word that people don't want to hear and some people in his hometown start conducting a plot, a conspiracy to kill him. Now that conspiracy goes nowhere. And, but Jeremiah hears that there are people who are trying to kill him. And for some reason that makes him upset. Now, now you and I might think about, well, so what? I mean, he's a prophet. He should expect that people are going to want to kill him. You know what I mean, you know what I mean? I mean we're, we're, all, we're, so, we're so spiritual. We're so callous. And yet people say one ugly thing about us behind our back and we find out about it and it, gets us all, it blows our whole week. You know? Well, I mean, Jeremiah's just like us and we're just like him. And Jeremiah gets upset and he starts complaining to the Lord about it. And he says, Lord, what did you get me into here? I don't understand this. Here I am serving you. I'm, look, I'm doing this. And look at what the, these people want to kill me. And the Lord gives this comforting word to Jeremiah. You ain't seen nothing yet. Straighten up, kid. You're, you're going to go through a whole lot worse than this. This is just training right now. You're going to there's They're going to This plot against you went nowhere. There are going to be some plots against you that do go somewhere and you're going to wonder if you're going to have your life. And understand, I'm with you. I'm going to protect you. They will not be able to take you. But they will think so. And you're going to think so. So you're going to have to trust me. Jeremiah, I have put you as the prophet with the toughest job at the toughest time in the history of your nation. Your nation has never seen a time of suffering like they're getting ready to experience. And you as a prophet are going to get in there and experience it with them because you are going to have to be bring my word to them. So you've got the toughest job of any prophet. Isaiah only thought he had it tough. You really are going to have to go through some things. Jeremiah had to learn the issue. And he also had to learn in the midst of it all, 
God was going to be faithful to his promise to him. And through it all, God was going to be faithful to everything that he said. He is going to be faithful. This is not because God was just doing this special for Jeremiah. It's because God is faithful to everybody, including to the disobedient, including faithful to fulfill everything that he said is going to happen to those who are disobedient to his law. And now Jeremiah is living in the generation in which all of that's going to fall and it is the toughest job of any prophet who has come yet because he's God's point man in the days when the sword is coming down. So Jeremiah has gone through his whole life, his whole ministry and the sword came, the sword fell and it, Jeremiah has to stand and witness the destruction, the total just destruction of Jerusalem, Judea, the demolition of the temple, it's burning to the ground. Everything, everything on which Israel, you know, everything that made Judah think that they were special is gone. All that's left is the word of God. That would be enough for those who believed it. The problem was, people still didn't believe it. So, this is where Jeremiah is now. Everything, but everything, finally though, here's the deal. The storm has passed. There has been a great exile. All the brightest and best have been taken to Babylon. Then those who were left behind continued to rebel, both against God and against the Babylonian king to which God had submitted them. So Nebuchadnezzar came back in and he wiped the place out and there was a mass deportation, not only of the brightest and best, but also of the mediocre, the everyday, the average. So those, the only ones that were left were the refugees. People who didn't own anything. <laughs> they had no property. They had no property to steal. Those were the ones that were left behind. The people who had no talents worth taking to Babylon. They were the ones left behind. The people who ran and escaped into the hills and weren't worth looking for and hunting down. They were the ones who were left behind. It wasn't that the place was just absolutely vacant. But the people who were left were not going, here's the deal, these were not going to be able, who were going to, these were not the people who were going to be able to reform a nation. At best, they were going to be able to occupy a largely vacant territory. So, that's what we've got. Jeremiah has been left with a promise from King Nebuchadnezzar. You've got safe passage. I appreciate the fact that you, of all people, stood inside Jerusalem and at the peril of your own life, urged them to surrender. None of this would have happened if they had listened to you. Folks, when I turn my war machine loose on you, that's all she wrote. 
So Nebuchadnezzar, in appreciation for Jeremiah, what he perceived was Jeremiah's service to him had nothing to do with Nebuchadnezzar. It had everything to do with the Word of God. But what, in appreciation for Jeremiah's service to him, Nebuchadnezzar gave Jeremiah not just amnesty, but essentially safe passage to go anywhere. So why then in verse four, in chapter 40 do we see that Jeremiah is, has to be set free from chains? Well, ever hear of the bureaucratic snafu? Ever hear of somebody's paperwork just not going through? Ever hear of people getting mixed up and brought in with people that, you know, does that ever happen? Of course, you know, we're, that happens all the time in the modern world with modern record keeping. How much more would that happen in days in which records were kept upon clay tablets? So, Jer somehow, Jeremiah gets mixed in with a group that's rounded up to be deported. And in the middle of that, the officer who happened to have been charged by Nebuchadnezzar with making sure that Jeremiah has safe passage spots him and makes sure that he gets set free. So that's taking place in this chapter. So the word, uh, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he took him bound in chains along with the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. That's verse 1. What are the first words of that verse? The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Now it may surprise you if you hear those words and pay attention to what's going on that we don't hear a word of the Lord for a long time. We don't hear another, we don't hear a word from the Lord through the rest of this chapter. We don't hear a word from the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah until basically chapter 42. <laughs> The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, and we're not, and then, why is this introduced this way? First of all, that's what Jeremiah was about. Don't lose sight of the fact, that the fact that we have more of a personal interior insight into what's going on with Jeremiah. Don't lose sight of the fact that Jeremiah was all about the word of God. And the thing that mattered about the life of Jeremiah was not Jeremiah himself for Jeremiah's sake. It's the word of the Lord. And all of this, this is set up, all of this is basically an extended introduction, kind of like what I'm giving right now. An extended in introduction to what the real message of this chapter is. There's a long, long story that goes here, and Jeremiah is not even part of most of the story. So you have to be patient with it. Figure out, okay, what's going on here? What's being said? So, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah after Nebuchadnezzar came and said, what is Jeremiah doing in this group of hostages going to Babylon. Let him go. And he, Nebuchadnezzar goes, takes Jeremiah, looks at him face to face and says, okay, tell you what, 
All of this has taken place. And there's a little speech that Nebuzaradan gives. Now Nebuzaradan, who's he? He is an officer of the Babylonian army. He's a high rank. He's basically a commander of the Babylonian army. So he goes through this long, elaborate speech. And what he says in this speech is that the Lord your God caused all this to happen. Now, it's not because Nebuzaradan was a worshiper of Yahweh. All of this is public relations. All of this is PR. I think this was done publicly. I think this was done in such a way as to set Jeremiah apart. I think it was done for a little bit of self-aggrandizement. It wasn't just for Jeremiah's benefit, but it was for the benefit of those hearing. It was PR. There was a little bit of propaganda going on, but in the process of doing this, he's actually telling the truth. Whether he believes it in his heart is not the point. What he's saying is the truth. He is repeating back to Jeremiah the message of Jeremiah and essentially is telling Jeremiah, this is why you are being given this privileged status. And you've got some options. We're going to let you go with us to Babylon if you want to go. Uh, and you, under personal safekeeping, you will have a privileged position in Babylon if you want to go with us. You've got plenty of your people there who are your fans. Your name is known in Babylon. There are people there who will support you. You've got family. You've got friends there. You can go to Babylon with us if you want to. You can go stay with Gedaliah, whom Nebuchadnezzar has appointed the governor here, if you want to go. And if you do, he is authorized and commanded to give you a privileged place. You've got, you, your room and board is taken care of. You don't have to pay any, you are, you're set for life as far as that goes. I mean, you, you're going to have a living wage the rest of your life. Don't worry about anything. You're covered. If you want to stay with Gedaliah. Or if those things don't work for you, you can go anywhere you want to go. That is a rare self, uh, safe conduct. I mean, that basically is a blank slate. Whatever you want to do, Jeremiah, you can go with us. You can stay here. You can go wherever you want to go. You can go to Calcutta if you want to go there. I mean, it doesn't matter where. You can go anywhere you want to go. You are free. Jeremiah said, you can go stay with Gedaliah. Verse 7, when all the captains of the forces in open country and, and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, governor in the land, had committed to him women, the men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land had not been taken to exile in Babylon. They went to Gedaliah at Mitzvah. The, the seat of such government as there was that was left in the land was moved from Jerusalem, which is a ruin, to Mizpah. It's an ancient town, has a lot of history, goes back all the way to the days of the patriarchs. That's where they've got, and, but it's just, it's, it's not a big city, it's just a town. This is where Gedaliah has set up the seat of Babylonian government in Judea. So now they, there are these bands of Judean soldiers 
that have escaped. They've just gone out. They've been hiding in the hills. Is Gedaliah the son of David? No. He is not. And we've seen Gedaliah before. He just, he's been a government official. And uh, he's somebody, and he's somebody who had supported Jeremiah before. So this same Gedaliah. Now. He supported Jeremiah? Yeah. So that's why he became governor, is because he supported Jeremiah. There were certain, you know, there were certain people that, that Nebuchadnezzar looked at and said, okay, who, you know, in the process of this, and is sorting through the, such as they were, the, the, the prisoners that were left, you know, and the, those that were, Gedaliah was one of those that said, okay, you don't kill him, I'm going to use him. And so Gedaliah, and he's that, so Gedaliah sets up shop, and these command, and so it names these commanders, and chief among them are Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and Johanan, son of Kareah. There are several other guys who are mentioned, but these are the two officers whose names really are significant in this story. They come in. Now, who are these? These are just the guy, these are just the men who were the officers in charge of those companies that had escaped, just the remnants of those companies that had escaped with their lives and they were hiding out in the Judean hills. Going out in the desert, doing the David thing. So they came in when they heard that Gedaliah was in charge. They came in. And Gedaliah met, had a meeting with them. And verse 9, he says, He swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land, serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. Basically, he says, I'm authorized to give you amnesty. Come on in. Bring your guys in. Help us out. Help us get this thing back together. This is, this is the atmosphere here. Here we are. The storm has passed. The place is a wreck. But now we are the survivors and we are the ones who are left to try to piece something together. Help us do this. So, verse 12, Then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven, came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah. They gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. Why does it specify wine and summer fruits? Because there was no planting of grain. So they just had what, you know, just the things that were growing on the trees and the vines. But there was, there was enough to survive. There was enough to, to hang in there. Verse 13, Now Johanan the son of Kareah and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mitzvah and said to him, Do you know that Baalus the king of the Ammonites has sent Ishmael the son of Nethaniah to take your life? Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe him. Then Johanan, the son of Kareah, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mitzvah, so had a private meeting with him, and basically said, let me take him out. And Gedaliah said, no. I, do not, I will not commission you to murder a man. What you're saying is wrong. It can't be true. It can't be true. What is going on here? These men uncover, they find out that Ishmael has been doing some double dealing. 
with the king of the Ammonites, who was not crazy about seeing his old enemies, the Jews, even surviving at all in this place. And so he's going to try to upset that apple cart. And so he hires Ishmael, this army officer, to do a hit. These other army officers get wind of it, and they warn Gedaliah about it, and Gedaliah says, that can't be so. That can't. You guys, you've got the wrong information. There's something going on here. But, you know, and, and Johanan says, let me, ta- let me just take him out. No, I will not permit it. Seventh month, we don't know of what year. There, we do know that there was a third deportation made. Nebuchadnezzar came and rounded up the strays and carried them into Babylon. About five years or so later, after the destruction And it could be that what took place there was in retaliation for what we're seeing here. Seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, the royal family of the royal family. See, Ishmael was one of the... He was one of those people who was in the general household of of the line of David. One of those great-grand-nephews, probably. One of the chief officers of the king came with ten men to Gedaliah, son of Nethaniah, and the ten men, uh, and they, or Gedaliah at Mizpah, they ate bread there together at Mizpah. They came down, had a nice banquet. Everybody's happy. There's a nice little party. And a certain part of the banquet, they all got up, all ten of them, and they assassinated Gedaliah and everybody there at the party. And the Babylonian soldiers who were there as security. Oh my goodness. What was the worst strike? Taking out the man that Nebuchadnezzar has appointed governor or touching a hair on the head of a Babylonian soldier? You know, this is not, you know. Now, Johanan and his crew, I mean, he's got his troop. They're out on patrol somewhere. They hear about this. And so they, they come in. And they chase Ishmael and his band of renegades. Oh, by the way, Ishmael and his band of renegades takes captive those that... All right. As a matter of fact, it's, it, that's, that's not even the most, I mean, this was a dastardly assassination. I mean, it's just absolutely treacherous. So, you know, here's a man who's cold, open, trusting, giving to you everything, and then you just go and shoot him in the heart. I mean, it's just, that's, I mean, it's just wicked. It's villainous all the way. And to compound that, just to tell you the character of this man, Ishmael, This man who was an army officer and a prince of the house of David. They go out the next morning in in the wake of all of this. 
they look out and they see a group of pilgrims coming up. And these pilgrims, these are people who, have, uh, who are obviously on their way to Jerusalem. They're going to Jerusalem to do what is, to worship the best, the only way that's left, which is to bring grain offerings and, and, and that sort of thing. And they've come up, they've, their, their beards are shaved, their hair is cut, they are, their clothes are torn, and they've gashed themselves. They are, um, yes, that is prohibited in the law. Surprise, people are breaking the law even in worshiping the Lord. I mean, that's just part of it. So they're coming up, they're on their way and to, in a pilgrimage of mourning to go and weep over the destroyed temple in Jerusalem. This is what they're on their way to do. It's very obvious. You can see them coming. They know who these people are because this, these kinds of pilgrims are traipsing up to Jerusalem pretty regularly these days. And Ishmael sees them coming. And he goes out and it says, and he goes out and he weeps and he cries. Oh, yeah, we're all this morning. He brings them in and then they slaughter them. What is he doing with all the dead bodies? Well, there's a cistern out there that was dug back in the days of King Asa when Asa was carrying on a war with Baasha, the king of Israel. And the writing is very vivid here. So this was an empty cistern. Ishmael filled it with the dead bodies. But there was a group of them that bribed Ishmael. So we've hidden some food and some wine and some places. We'll show you where it is if you let us go with our lives. Said, okay. This is a callous, ruthless man. This is the character of the people who are left behind. Does this give you a clue as to what has changed in Judah since the destruction that was brought by the Lord? What does this tell you so far? Just so far, what does this tell you? Tell you that things really haven't changed much? There's always one. That's what it looks like right now. It looks like Ishmael is the renegade. He's the villain. He is the I mean, if it if it wasn't for somebody like Ishmael, I mean just the one person who is a sellout, everything would have gone fine. If it just wasn't for if it was one guy who ruined the whole thing. It's what it looks like. Keep reading. Johanan and Ishmael takes a group of people, a whole group of hostages with him. Johanan has his group and they find out about it and they run him down. They run him down at the border. They rescue the hostages, but Ishmael and his crew escape to Ammon and get across to the king of Ammon. <coughs> Can't touch him now. So, Johanan leads his group on the way back. They pick up Jeremiah and 
somewhere along the way. And they decide, when Nebuchadnezzar finds out about this, we're all toast. Because he's going to want the head of the guy that did all this, and we can't give it to him, and so he's going to come after us. You can understand the reason, can you not? So that's what they get together, and that's what Johanan, they all get together. They come to, so they come, it says that they stay... Uh, verse 17, they went and stayed at Garuth Himham near Bethlehem. Basically, Garuth means dwelling place of Himham. This is the Him, this is the Himham Inn. This is the Himham Hotel. Right here. You know, this is this is just, you know, this is a truck stop here on the way. This is outside. Otherwise, it is not really a known place. It's just a little truck stop outside of outside of Bethlehem. That's where they stop. That's where they're all camped. They're camped at the KOA out there, you know. So, uh, yeah, they've got their RV set up and they, you know, everything. And they stayed there. They were intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans. That's another word for Babylonians. For they were afraid of them because of Ishmael. Because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor in the land. That keeps being emphasized, so you will understand what are the motives of these people. What's on their mind? Then all the commanders of all the forces, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and the Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, all the people from the least to the greatest came near, said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you. Pray to the Lord your God for us for all this. No, sir, they said that. Pray, pray to the Lord your God for us. For all this remnant. Because we are left with but a few as you see, as you, your eyes see us. That the, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing we should do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I've heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. And whatever the Lord answers, I will tell you. Commentators, there are some commentators who look at that and say... Uh, that's kind of an interesting little exchange of, you know, that, that pronoun, that possessive pronoun there. The Lord your God, no, it's the Lord your God. So that's interesting, but it's no big deal. But there are others and I, with whom I agree. There's some significance there. There's, there's a play going on here. And there's a point that's being made. They come to Jeremiah and say, pray to the Lord your God for us. And Jeremiah is trying to get them to understand something. Now, he's the Lord your God. He's the Lord your God, don't you understand? Can't you see after all of this? He's still the Lord your God. So he said, I will pray for you. And I will find out what the Lord says. And it says, I will keep nothing back from you. Notice how Jeremiah makes that point. Now, as if Jeremiah ever would, if you ever knew Jeremiah. But these people still won't get it. And Jeremiah is making the point. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hear from the Lord. You know by now that I really do hear from the Lord. That's why you're coming to me. I want to pledge to you whatever the Lord tells me, whether it's good or bad. I'm not going to keep it from you. I'm not going to keep you any secrets from you that the Lord tells me. Okay. Why? Why would he do that? People, well, 
if you're suspicious enough, if you are of a suspicious mind, then you're going to worry about stuff like this. And if you or yourself are untrustworthy, you're going to wonder how anybody else can be trustworthy. Jeremiah is doing everything he can to be transparent. He said, I'm not going to mess with you. I promise that. And so then they come back. Does this sound a little bit hinky to you? After they make this request and after Jeremiah makes this promise, look at what they say. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word which the Lord your God sends you to us. Whether it's good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the Lord our God, the voice of the Lord our God. You know what makes me suspicious of people? makes me wonder about them when they go overboard trying to assure me of something that I've already agreed to. And I, you know, I can see Jeremiah say, okay. Alright, I ex- yeah. That's what I would anticipate that you're asking me this so you could do what the Lord said. Yeah. I would expect that. They are just going, they are just gushing. When people gush, now there are some people who are just gushers, I mean, there's trouble. But in general, when people gush, it does make me worry. It really does. So, verse 7. At the end of ten days. Now you notice the word of the Lord doesn't come instantly to Jeremiah. I don't know why not. Jeremiah had to get out. He had to pray. He had to really seek the Lord. He had to be patient. Now, why not? Is that the, the way it always would be? Not necessarily. There are some times when the Lord might give you an instantaneous reply. But in this case, Jeremiah had to wait. And everybody else had to wait. There was a 10-day waiting period between the time that Jeremiah started praying for them and the time that the word of the Lord came, but come that it did. And then he summoned Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the commanders of the forces who were there with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest. So he wanted everybody there. He wanted the whole group. I want everybody to hear what, I'm having to say, what I have to say. I don't want to just say this to the committee. I want to tell everybody. Everybody needs to hear this. There's a reason we're going to see why everybody needed to hear this. This is, in, this is not a simple deal. Remember, the motives of an individual may be pretty, pretty complex in and of themselves. The motives of a group are multiply complex. <clears throat> because all of the different motives that may be in a, in a certain individual are multiplied exponentially when you have a crowd. So Jeremiah wants everybody there and he wants everybody to hear the word of the Lord. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy for him. Remember, you hired me for this. Actually, you didn't hire me. You came with a request. I'm not getting anything out of this. 
You guys haven't even taken up a love offering. Never mind. By the way, they're not going to take up a love offering. Let me just go ahead and tell you. Thus says the Lord, if you remain in, if you will remain in this land, this land, verse 10, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and I will not pluck you up. These are words that go right back to the original call that Jeremiah, God gave to Jeremiah. And using those original words that go right to the heart of Jeremiah's message, Jeremiah says, I will, if you will remain in this land, all of the positives of the message that I gave to Jeremiah, all the promises I will fulfill for you. For I will relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord. For I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. But. Now why do you think that the but clause comes in? Well, first of all, Jeremiah knows these folks well enough to know they really already have made up their mind. And if Jeremiah knows, you know God knows. Now remember, this isn't the word of Jeremiah, this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord knows the heart. He sees. He says, but if you say, they are going to say it. Let me just go ahead and skip to the chase on that. They are going to say this. But if you say, we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there. Then the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces... If you, uh, that, that is a literal translation of the Hebrew phrase. If you set your faces to enter Egypt, to go live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. All the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. That same familiar refrain that's been going through Jeremiah in all of these messages of judgment. What's going to happen? The sword, famine, and pestilence. And it's going to follow you all the way to Egypt. You're not going to escape it by running across the border to Egypt. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my wrath were poured out upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You shall be an execration, a horror, a curse, a taunt. You shall see this place no more. The Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know for a certainty that I have warned you this day that you have gone astray at the cost of your lives. For you sent me to the Lord your God saying, pray to us for the Lord our God and whatever the Lord our God says, declare to us and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that he sent me to tell you. And now therefore know for certainty that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go to live. You shouldn't have said, you shouldn't have sworn. 
You shouldn't have said, I swear to God, we're going to do what the Lord says. You just shouldn't have done that. Because don't you understand by now, when you swear in the name of the Lord, He holds you to it. When Jeremiah finished speaking, <laughs> didn't set well. If Jeremiah, if they were, if they were ever going to take up a love offering for Jeremiah, at this point, forget about it. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord the God, their God had sent him to them. Notice how that's phrased. When he had finished speaking all the words of the Lord their God, which he had, they had sent to the Lord their God to find out for them. Azariah the son of Hoshiah and Johanan the son of Kareah and all the insolent men. Now notice who the ringleaders are. And notice that these are the very guys who brought who are named in bring the request to Jeremiah to do all this praying and to bring this message. And they are the very guys who were the ones who, were, who led the people in making this elaborate show. Said, oh, it doesn't matter whatever the Lord says, whether it's good or bad. We'll do it. We'll, I promise we'll do it. We, we, we swear to God we're going to do what the Lord says. Same guys. You're lying. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us. Now, look at this. Look at this excuse. This, by the way, tells you a little bit of something about Baruch. Baruch was not just some guy that Jeremiah hired off the corner. Baruch was an official in the court of the king. He was a very highly placed and highly respected man in his day. And when he hitched up with Jeremiah to serve Jeremiah, now we see something going on here. It looked like Baruch was using Jeremiah, not Jeremiah using Baruch. And now these people are saying, Baruch has stirred you up against us. Baruch wants to come in. Baruch wants to be appointed in the place of Gedaliah. Baruch is the one who wants to really take our place. He's the one, he's the one who made you say all these things. Now, why would, they, why would they have those kind of motives? Why would they think, why would they think those kind of motives about Baruch? Psychologists call it projection. It's a defense mechanism by which you take the things that you do not want to see in yourself, the things that you yourself are guilty of, and project them on other people in order to make you feel better about yourself. And about your choices and about the things that you're doing. And so they say, no, 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 we're not going to do this. (laughs) 
So Johanna and the son, basically what happens, they said, forget about what you're saying. We're going to Egypt. And by the way, you're going with us. So they dragged Jeremiah, kicking and screaming, all the way down to Egypt with him. They go, as soon as they get there, the Lord gives Jeremiah an assignment. It's another one of those demonstrations, another one of those object lessons. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to get some stones, and I want you to go, and I want, and basically put them under the clay pavement there, right at the gate, Tapanes, this Egyptian city where they went to, right at the gate of the, of the palace. Now, this was not the capital city, but the pharaoh of Egypt would have had, had and matter of fact, did have a palace, a, a court there at Tapanes. Say, so go and plant some stones underneath the pavement there because the stones represent all of these Judeans who have come down here and thought that they were going to find their safety, their refuge from the king of Babylon here. Understand the king of Babylon is going to come and spread his canopy over these stones. They are not safe here from the king of Babylon. He's going to come and he's going to take them all. And he's going to take them out. And he's going to level this place. And he's going to come and he's going to do what he needs to do and he's going to leave in peace. He's not going to conquer this place in order to take it over. He has no interest in trying to rule Egypt. He's got enough desert on his hand. He doesn't need the Egyptian desert. What he's going to do is he's going to come in. And he's going to make a point. That's exactly, by the way, what Nebuchadnezzar did do. He came, invaded Egypt, made a wreck of the place. There's a very vivid figure of speech in verse 12. He shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin. <laughs> He's got a, it's, a, the, the, it's a very vivid Hebrew. It's the same. It's like he, he's going to be, he's going to clean Egypt like, like a shepherd picks lice out of his cloak. And he shall break the obelisk of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he shall burn with fire. Chapter 44, the word that came to Jeremiah. By the way, it took all that time in order to get to the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. All that's for this. What's changed? The storm is past. The destruction has taken place. Circumstances don't change people's character. You think it does. You think surely somebody who's been through all of this, their attitudes are going to change, their lives are going to be changed. Circumstances do not change people's character. You need to understand that. Don't expect that it will. Only the grace of God changes people's character. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt. You've seen this day the disaster I brought upon Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. Your fathers, they went to make offerings, serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers. Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets. 
don't do this abomination that I hate. They didn't listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil, make no offerings to other gods. Look down at verse 10. They have not humbled themselves even to this day. Nor have they feared nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and your fathers. Thus, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off Judah. What this comes out is a message, basically an application of the message of Deuteronomy, such as we've seen before in Jeremiah. and says, you people who have come down here and you are determined that you are going to continue in your disobedience. To the extent that you are continuing to worship false gods even here. Your wives are sending up sacrifices to the queen of heaven. The wives stand up and say, our husbands knew about everything that we're doing and they approved. And then the husbands double down on it and say, yeah, you're right. We are doing that and we're going to keep on doing it too. And Jeremiah said, fine, go ahead and keep on. And here's the result. You're all going to die down here. You think you're going to be able one of these days to return to Judah. God is never going to let you back into his land. Why? Because God has brought all of this about in order to cleanse his people of the very idolatry that you continue to practice. In mercy for those, in mercy for the believing remnant of his covenant, God is showing severity toward those who continue to violate his law. Remember, it's all about Christ. All of this is to bring about the promise which ultimately would come of the branch of David. The one who would bring in the new covenant which would write the law in our hearts and not just on tablets of stone. These people don't even understand their own motives. I think there were some people when they came back to Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, you know, we really want to find out what God's word is. We'll do it whatever. I, don't, I think there were many people there who really thought we're going to do what the Lord says. But when it right, came right down to it, well, back in Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah had received this word from the Lord. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is terminally sick. Who can know? The heart is deceitful above all things and we don't even know our own motives until they're tested. I think there are a lot of these people in this crowd who really thought, you know, we'll do what the Lord says. And there may have been some people in that crowd who really thought that. But they followed their leaders and the leaders were absolutely determined. We're going to The Lord's going to tell us to go to Egypt. But if he doesn't, we're still going to go to Egypt. What is God's word? From the day that God brought them out of Egypt. Don't even think about going back. Because the people who try to go back, I will destroy. Chapter 45. Look at this little chapter. Just five verses. This is, by the way, with these words of Jeremiah, before we leave, this is the last prophecy of Jeremiah. Verse 28, 
Those who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number, and all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. That's the last word of Jeremiah. At this point, with this abrupt ending, the story of Jeremiah ends. And we don't know what happened to Jeremiah. There are at least three different traditions as to what happened to Jeremiah. And none of them have any facts to back them up. One of them is that he was martyred in Egypt. Another one is that he returned to Judah. Another is that he went and lived out the rest of his days with Babylon. We don't know what happened to Jeremiah. Why didn't God tell us the end of the story of Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah's story is not what mattered even to Jeremiah. And that's the point of this little postscript, this little epilogue, which is a flashback. Back to the days when Jeremiah first conscripted Baruch to put down, to write down all of his prophecies for it, to take them to Jehoiakim. Verse 2, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, Baruch, you said... Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. You ever been there? Thus says Jeremiah, been there too. So you would think Jeremiah's response is going to be, I know the feeling, buddy. I'm with you. Stay in there. Look at what Jeremiah says. Thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what, I'm, what, I have, what I have built, I am breaking down. And what I have planted, I am plucking up, that is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for behold, I'm bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places to which you may go. <laughs> That's comforting. What is the word of the Lord to Baruch? Baruch? Now, Baruch is a sincere man. And he's done everything that he's done for the servant. I'm sure he thought, um, it, it, it's a feeling that comes to all of us at some point or other. Lord, I've, we've followed you. We've left everything to follow you, said Peter. What do we have? It's honest. By the way, always be honest with God. There's no point in not being. And if that's the way you feel, be honest, but be ready for a rebuke. Reward? Say, Baruch, look around. God is taking that which He has planted and He's ripping it out of the ground. God is taking that which He has built from the ground up and He is demolishing everything. This is not a day for asking for reward. But I'll tell you, here's you're going to be your reward. You'll escape with your life. There aren't many people in this day that are going to be able to say that. 
Let's translate that real quick. We don't live in a day quite that harsh. Sometimes we may think we are, but we're not living in a day that harsh. We are not living under the covenant of law, such as they were living under at that time. We're under the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. But we think, sometimes we think, and we, we're like Baruch. We get into these pity parties. We think, oh, Lord, I've served you, and I've, I've trusted you. I've believed in you. What, what's my reward? Try this on. When you get into this, and I've been there, remember something. Think about it this way. If the only thing, if the only blessing you ever got out of your salvation was that you knew that your sins are forgiven, is that enough? What if the only blessing you got out of your salvation was the forgiveness of your sins? Now, here's the deal. You know that that's not the only thing. You know that. But what if that were the only thing? Think about it. When you get down to the depths of everything, remember this. Your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. If that's all the reward you've got, that's still pretty good. Amen? Think about it. You've been listening to the eighth of ten episodes covering the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. The story of Jeremiah is finished. What more is there to be said? Well, like many books, this one has an appendix. Jeremiah's prophecies to the other nations, reminding them that God is God and they are not. I hope you'll tune in. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.